Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, presented by Canon Press. This week's episode features Douglas Wilson, C.R. Wiley, and Michael Foster in a roundtable discussion on manhood, community, and dominion. If you enjoy it, check out a bundle of all three of their new books at canonpress.com. As a man goes, goes the household. As a household goes, so goes society. Welcome to Dominion Roundtable. We are here to talk about our books. And since everyone loves Tolkien... <laughs> and almost everybody. <laughs> almost everybody loves Tolkien. Um, uh, Chris is the one angling for the popular vote here. <laughs> Except I may have the most unpopular character in the whole thing, as well as the most popular character. Yeah, so what, whatever possessed you to write a book about Tom Bombadil? Well, I, like a lot of folks, I, I was curious. What is this guy about? He doesn't seem to fit in the story. He doesn't seem to... Uh, you know, serve the plot in the way that uh, most folks think a character should. And yet there he is. He's in the book. And as I thought about him and reflected on him, I thought, you know, there's there's a lot going on here that Tolkien was up to that I'm not sure people are catching. Right. And uh, so I thought, well, I'd like to dig into it. And it actually has a lot to do with dominion and its proper exercise right. as opposed to uh, domination, which is what Saran and Saruman were up to. Right. And uh, so I thought, wow, man, this uh, this actually kind of even ties into some stuff I've written about before. So I thought, I guess I should do it. <laughs> okay. So I was I was interested in looking at um, when Goldberry says he's the master, Tom Bombadil's the master. And I'm, we're talking about the words dominion and domination as being two different, uh, same root, but two different concepts. Right. It'd be the same with master and mastery. But, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a good kind of mastery, of course, but Bombadil is sort of organically the master. Yeah. He cuts with the grain. Right. Yeah. Right. I think that's, that's key. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. He's, uh, you know, the word, uh, master, uh, in some contexts just simply meant teacher. Right. You know, uh, so like back in Boston, there's a school called Roxbury Lat, which is the oldest private school in America. And they still fly the Union Jack. It's an amazing place wow. to kind of check out. <laughs> and but when you drive up to the to the campus, there's the Union Jack, and all the instructors are called master. You know, so I don't know if that's still the case. Maybe they finally succumbed to PC, but that was the case back in the '90s when we were considering sending our oldest son there. But getting back to the the point, you know, master. I think uh, obviously Tolkien was philologist. He knew about the origin of words, origins right. of words, and he knew. Uh, that master didn't necessarily connote what people think it does. Right. When, when we think of authority in the modern world, authority, headship, uh, people automatically think despotism, evil, tyrant. Right? right, right. And that would come up in, in your book, right? If men are to have authority or to have dominion in their homes, yep. that's very different than being the boss man uh, who comes home and demands his supper at at six, right? Yeah, like <clears throat> what I was th saw in your book, and I heard you give a, a talk on it a while back. And I, the dominion versus domination, like paradigm, was like really helpful because what we're calling men to is a restored nature, right? So having that grace uh, doesn't obliterate, it doesn't even elevate, but it restores nature, right? right. And that whole idea in your book of Bombadil, where the other guys, right, the servants of Mordor are trying to pick everything apart and make it mechanical. Whereas Bombadil is at peace with nature, right? With God's cosmos, right? You should write a book on that, by the way. Um, <laughs> it's a great idea. <laughs> but uh, there's a potential for a trilogy here, I see. Uh, but, but yeah, that's very much at the, the core of what we were writing, which is uh, God's design is good, uh, marred by the fall, uh, but still present. And needs to be uh, redeemed, restored by by grace, and so that's it. All plays in there, yeah, very and, much. And and one of the ways we redeem it is by not running away from false accusations or imputations. So, for example, uh, your, the title of your book "It's Good to Be a Man." Somebody's going to come up and say, "What you're saying is bad to be a woman." Well, it's amazing. It how is people if there's can a actually take that and say, "Like, are you actually saying that it's?" Uh, like the only good thing in the world? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, it's bad to be a woman if there's uh, someone out, a prowler outside or a spider in a yeah. bathtub sometimes. It's bad to be a woman if you're not one. Yeah, <laughs> that's especially true. And the head of health departments. Um, but yeah, yeah, very much uh, that 
it's we wanted to focus on what God God's design and not to be ashamed of it, not to be ashamed of masculinity. Um, obviously, it's good to be a woman as well. That's like Genesis chapter one, basic right. things. This is part of God's cosmos and he's made things. And we're being trained to be ashamed of the way God has ordered the world. We're being trained to be ashamed of hierarchy and the created order and all that. And when it's uh, reordered according to the Lordship of Jesus, it's wonderful. Right? It's a right. good thing. So uh, we were so afraid of counterfeits that we've uh, rejected the use of real money to, for the sake of yeah, sake exactly. of uh, avoiding uh, counterfeits. Um, so, um, in, in Gashmu saith there's the, that phrase, I should probably explain that the title Gashmu saith. Gashmu, I know who that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the killer whale at, <laughs> at the sea world in Turkey. <laughs> Gashmu. Um, I didn't know he talked. <laughs> yes. Um, he speaks archaic English. Um, uh, there's a, it's a wonderful little, uh, line in the King James version in the book of Nehemiah where Nehemiah is being told uh, by his opponents that everybody knows you're setting yourself up to revolt against the king and, and, and Gashmu saith it, you know, so this, this character, un, uh, you know, who is this guy? Um, get, it makes his way into sacred scripture as being an unnamed uh, online critic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> guy who leaves comments in your, in your blog. Yeah. yeah. An authority. Just think, just think YouTube commenter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's but it, but it is interesting that, you know, he, uh, obviously has an agenda. He doesn't right. want this, this wall built. Right. And he's using a, you know, an argument that's not his own argument. It's, it's he's, he's appealing to a th some other authority to say mm -hmm. you shouldn't do that, but it's actually his own self-interest that's, uh, you know, being served when he says that. Right. So, um, your, um, your book is addressing individual men. You say, you say that we're, this is not a marriage book, yep. although it affects marriage. This is not a, uh, parenting book, although it affects parenting. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's for individual men who grew up fatherless, let's say, or, mm -hmm. or functionally fatherless yep. who don't know what it is to step into manhood. And then, that's sort of a prerequisite to taking on other responsibilities, like being a husband, being a father, that's right. what whatnot. But you're addressing uh, men in that role. Uh, it seems that you're addressing more of a cultural, broader cultural thing, like Saruman, and that we could probably get into how we pronounce names here. <laughs> <laughs> Saruman, Saruman. Right. Um, but his had he had a mind full of gears and wheels and smokestacks. He, that's a certain cultural vision, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But the elves were artisans. They yeah. they they made things with their hands. Yeah. The problem was not that Saruman uh, manufactured things. Yeah. It was how, yeah. right? And Bombadil is sort of the preeminent example of someone who's in tune with the world the way it is. Yeah. And and it's but it's the whole created order. And my uh, my book is addressing dominion oh. in. Um, in a community, like a, a small community, a church or a, a Christian yeah. community, and every one of them is going to be sl slandered. Like you, you want uh, domestic abuse, and oh yeah, and I mean, what uh, else? Uh, and I want to, <laughs> yeah. I want to found found a cult. You know, right, we want right. a cult, <laughs> and this over here would be unfettered capitalism. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. is going to, you know. Yeah, I think one of the things that I was uh, hoping to address uh, in in the book is um, there's a kind of um, story that we, that or kind of approach to interpreting Tolkien that uh, is is related to the Ring of Power. So the Ring of Power is uh, bad, right? right? And that I think some people have taken that to to imply that power itself is bad, right? Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. I mean, uh, one of the points I try to make in the in the book is that or bring to this bring out is. Uh, Bombadil may be the most powerful character in Middle Earth. Right. You know, he may be a match for Saran. Right. And uh, he's powerful. He does right. some really amazing things in the story. Right. And Gandalf's powerful. Aragorn's powerful. And so power is not the issue, and yet not bad. It's uh, a p power in a particular mode. Power how? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And power how it's acquired. So, you know, uh, that, that episode with Gandalf and Saruman, you know, in when Gan when when Saruman cap captures Gandalf, it's a kind of a revelation uh, with regard to uh, Saruman's method for acquiring power, and his his desire is to impose 
his will on the world. Mm-hmm. Now, his will, his understanding of what would be a good thing, yeah, imposed on free creatures. He wants to, he needs to break those creatures. He needs them to, to. So, you know, when we, we know a little bit about Tolkien's politics, he was, he actually described himself as a bit of an anarchist. And mm-hmm. uh, I think today we'd probably call him a libertarian. He might even call him, have yeah, called himself a libertarian. Right. Uh, but his, his uh, problem wasn't with power. Uh, power is all around us. It's mm-hmm. doing all kinds of great things. Power of a husband, father, man, you know, is a good thing. Yeah. And what we see in Bombadil is what unfallen dominion looks like. Domination is fallen. What, what dominion looks like when it's fallen. But what you see in Bombadil is a picture of what dominion looks like uh, as in- intended. A thread I see in the three books is it's uh, not it's not whether but which <clears throat> that whole mm-hmm. idea. It's not whether uh, men will rule; they will. It's God's design. It's not whether we're going to build community communities around uh, around religion. We're going to. And so, part of what I think we have to move towards, like like you mentioned, these books are going to be slandered without a doubt. But what I like about your book is that it's not like this guy says this, that's wrong. This guy says this, this is wrong. Is this is your read of Bombadil and you're writing it out. It's like a positive. What we wanted to do with our book was make a case for biblical masculinity and why it's good and why it's being attacked. And and instead of framing it as um, here's what Amy Bird said, and here's why she's wrong or whatever, uh, I didn't want to spend all my time writing a book that's reactive. I want to make people... Uh, react to me. Well, here, right. here's what right. you don't want to have happen. 200 years from now, when people say, we got to go back and research Michael Foster in his book. <laughs> Who's this Amy Bird person? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you don't want them like digging up her stuff, you know, to say, oh, okay. You just you just want to yeah. do what you want to do. What's this Let's Go Brandon thing? What's it all about? So um, uh, one of the things I think is going on with Bombadil, uh, well, you cite uh, Tolkien as recognizing that Bombadil requires an explanation. And yeah, yeah. and Tolkien says outright he's in there for a reason. And he doesn't expressly state what that reason is, but I think you do a good job in teasing out uh, what that likely is. But it struck me that it was a good example of Tolkien's self-awareness um, of his own personality predilections, because Bombadil is about as unlike Tolkien as you could possibly be. Um, Tolkien is the only, he, I love the books and, uh, but he's about the only writer I know of who could make going to heaven sad. (laughs) 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 We we all go down to the, go down to the gray havens and there's Celtic music in the background and there's leaves blowing across thing. And we all uh, go off to the endless joy. (laughs) Very melancholy. (laughs) Yeah. It's a, it's a real melancholy. It's a very effective and very potent, but, but then Bombadil comes in. Um, blue and yellow and uh, a splash of color against a very gray, solemn... Well, uh, yeah, you were the one that actually brought that to my attention, that the the prevailing color in The Lord of the Rings is gray. Right. So I actually, I said, I I, got to check this out. So I got out my my Kindle, typed in gray. Sure enough, it is the most... (laughs) It's the color that she... Gray rocks, gray eyes, gray... Yeah, yeah, it's everywhere. And then, yeah, Technicolor Tom. It's almost like... It's almost like, uh, you know, like Wizard of Oz. You know, you mm-hmm. land in Oz and mm-hmm. all this right. color. Tom shows up and all this mm-hmm. color. Right. And if we could take that as a metaphor for what we ought to be doing, and I would like to, uh, we'd want um, men to become a splash of color That's right. in a gray, very gray world. Mm-hmm. We would like Christian communities to become an explosion of color in a very gray yeah, world like and 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 you, but you can't do it by imitating Saruman. You, you've got to, you've got to understand what the log, internal logic of it is. Yeah, my friend uh, Glenn Sunshine makes a point of, uh, of you know, uh, addressing the subject of color in the medieval world. The Middle Ages were very colorful. Mm-hmm. I mean, actual in terms of what they people wore, how they you know their arts, all that kind of stuff. Everything was just color everywhere. But if you see, you know. Uh, what you what Peter Jackson did with Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. you know, or if you see what you know, I guess uh, who's the guy that does the uh, 
Oh, what's it? We should probably edit this part out. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're just going to leave you out there. <laughs> but anyway, but I think when people think about uh, the medieval world, they don't think color. Right. right. They think gray. Now, may, maybe that's what dark Tol- ages. Yeah, dark ages. Dark ages. It. Yeah. So maybe maybe some. Now, I think that Tolkien was was up to something pretty profound when he was using the color gray, uh, because I think what he was saying is that sin has uh, had a, uh, a graying effect on on things and on mm-hmm. creation itself. Even mm-hmm. anyway, but I've gone down that road and <laughs> <laughs> enough. <laughs> so um, come back to your book. What do you think? I, I mentioned earlier, you're tackling the problem of fatherlessness. Um, you say early on in the book that, uh, all right, so you didn't have a dad, didn't have a father. Um, you can't really fix that with YouTube clips. Yep, absolutely. Uh, right. Yeah. But you can do something. It's not like it's something that can't be redressed. That's right. Um, what would you say men who don't know how to be a man or don't know how to be a good man or don't know that it's good to be a man, what would you say they should do? I mean, step one, this is why guys are listening to Jordan Peterson or Jocko Willink or Joe Rogan to a lesser extent. Is that all of these guys preach, uh, take responsibility for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, where you break free is when you stop being a victim. And that's why the gospel is so powerful right. because you have to own that you're a sinner before God, you broke his law. You're not right with him right. and you have to repent. And so you start taking responsibility uh, for for your life, and it doesn't mean bad things have happened to you, right? right. Like right, not everything is your fault. Yeah. Uh, but welcome, once you take welcome res- to earth, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but now when you take responsibility for yourself and start start somewhere, and so we give some examples of it, but I think of it like a bike chain, you know, where it like falls off the bike, and you put the one around the ones the one little gear, and then you put it on there, and you start to turn the pedals, and the chain pops on. And what guys need to realize is that there's not going to be turn-by-turn GPS instructions for manhood. It's supposed to be caught from other men, fathers, uncles, mentors through life. And if you haven't had a lot of that, the only way to do it is to throw yourself into life, to to pursue these things. And and it's in the action of doing these that we develop virtue. Join a church, go where men are. Yep. Uh, yeah. Work hard, get a vocation, but develop skills. You know, I think one thing I picked up from Chris is, you know, I urge my sons to be a good, competent at a thousand things and experts at, you know, one or two things. Right. You know, so start to build these things. Learn how to tie a tie. Learn how to change your oil. Right. Learn how to how to outline a book of the Bible. There's so many things, but start developing skills and pursuing those things with other men. And, uh, and that's really where things take off. Yeah, I think um, we live in a culture today where the victim is uh, what you want to be Yeah, for a lot of folks. And if we want to re- see that reversed, then uh, we need to have men say, I'm not a victim. Yeah, I'm going to take responsibility for my life. And I think that that can be caught and it could kind of create a kind of uh, reverse sort of process. Um, where that that outlook can spread, uh, you know. In my own case, I know you were without a father, right, as a kid. I uh, my dad loved me, uh, but he he had an eighth grade education. Oh, okay, struggled so, with alcohol and got it, got you it. know. So he was there, but he didn't give me much. He yeah. gave me what he had. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, I, I I didn't have uh, anything like that. Yeah. But uh, anyway, there were men in my life, largely through the church. Uh, you know, I mm-hmm. went to I was converted in a little blue collar church in Western Pennsylvania. Where everybody changed their own oil, right. including the women. <laughs> it was just that kind of world, you know. And everybody had a big garden. Everybody worked in a factory. I mean, guys would come to church and talk about being in the smelter. It's 100, working in 120 degrees, you know, and that kind of thing. And uh, and there was just this sort of uh, remarkable competence I saw all around me. These yeah. guys knew how to do everything. Mm-hmm. You know, they'd pull the engine out of their vehicle. They'd, you know, put an addition on their house. Uh, and then they'd, you know, go out and, you know, shoot a deer. <laughs> yep. I just did everything, you know. And uh, what I what I saw in that was stuff that I really thought was great and admired, and and I respected those guys. And hopefully, a little bit of that was kind of osmosis, you know, for me, because mm-hmm. that's not the world I came out of. I came out yeah. of a much more sort of bohemian, academic, artsy world. As I've studied 
the topic and look back and say, how did I not get stuck in this myself? It really was that. It was there. There was a lot of men that spoke in my life, mostly from the church. I remember um, I wasn't a Christian yet, but I was like flirting on the idea. And this guy, he knew my parents were going to this weird charismatic church. And he said, oh, you're Don and Fred's son. I was like, I am. And I shook his hand and I gave him the dead fish. Right. <laughs> and he put his hand on my, my shoulder. He said, son, never. Never do that again. <laughs> That's not how you shake someone's hand. <laughs> let, let me show you. And you know what? I never did. It was really helpful yeah. because it was like he he didn't make uh, he, he didn't he made me feel ashamed as he should, but not in a vindictive sort of way. It's like let me show you how to do this. Right, right. And when you have guys that teach you how to read the Bible, how to pray, how to fix things, how to talk to a woman, how to calm down, you know, all those things add to you, and they just and they right. they take in a way that you just can't absorb. Uh, via like podcasts or even books to some degree because uh, God made us to be in relationship with one another, you know? So there's a, um, uh, there are two alternatives. Like there's the, there's the Tom Bombadil way and the Saruman way. There's the, there's dominion and there's domination. There's the uh, man who's a leader in his home and the head of his home and has true gospel authority in his home. And then there's the domineering tyrant. Mm. Right. But we are in a culture that has lar largely abdicated the whole concept of dominion. There are dominators out there, but there are, you mentioned earlier, the Jordan Petersons. And the, mm -hmm. the, so there, you've got the, this whole generation of fatherless boys uh, or young, turning into young men or um, boys who shave now. You know, right. they, sure, sure, sure. They, they've not, they've not matured. So there's a small cottage industry of, of people, you know, the, um, uh, the manosphere, mm. the life coaches, dating coaches, life, life coaches, road uh, courses, all, all give us that. money. Yeah. Right. So, and as I've interacted with some of it, I'm, uh, read some stuff by Rollo, um, Tomasi. Yeah. Tom yeah. Tomasi. Yeah. And it's a mixture of absolutely appalling. Yep. Um, and how come gospel preachers don't know this? Right. Yeah. Uh, like, like what an astounding insight. Yeah. That's really, really good. And this is horrendous. And this is horrendous. Yeah. So we've got we're dealing with the alternative, the opposite of what we're trying to inculcate, but we're also up against um, people who, by common grace, have bits and pieces, right? And yeah. who are saying helpful things and awful things, and it's a sort of a mixture. Mm -hmm. um, would you say that uh, what we're doing here is trying to provide a orth an orthodox biblical exegetically grounded case that will scratch the itch that these um unbelieving life coaches are trying to get at i i think so i mean i didn't know this thing was going to take off and turn into a book you know i had no clue um and um i've talked to rollo before and i told him i don't know how he liked this i don't think he liked it but i said you know everything in your book the the cumulative knowledge of it I could find in a 1920s bar, right? You know what I mean? And it's, and it's because there's a sort of cultural tsunami where you have waves go out and come in. And they would come in and they would rip things away and carry them out to sea, come in and rip more. And so each generation, things that we grew up with, even even at this stage of 41, uh, things that I assumed are just, they're just gone, right? And you don't even realize they're gone because people are so given to making excuses when young men say it's not like that. You're like, ah, you know, I think yeah. maybe it's just not working hard. And then you're like, well, no, there's like real changes. And so these guys are waking up. You're seeing it happen all across the country. I mean, Jordan, the Jordan Peterson sort of moment really is pretty significant. Um, but his answer is not, I don't like Peterson that much because I feel like he's scared of God's world. He's like, right. it's a cruel, horrible place. There's still a sort of nihilism to it as opposed to like God made this world for us to live in. He made it for us to rule over and it's his desire for us to shape it. I think it's a really different mindset. Um, so I think, yeah, people are ready for this. And what I've seen in the manosphere as I've become acquaintances and even friends with these guys is that hedonism is empty. <laughs> like falsehood is bad. Truth is good. And as they've given themselves to 
different of these elements is destroying their life. And I'm watching these pickup artists say, nah, maybe I should get married. Maybe I should stop doing this. And, mm -hmm. and so I think there's a real, we're at some sort of strange point in history right now. There's some, some weird spiritual awakening happening. And I think this is good. And the church has the answer. And these guys have just been observing the creational design of things that we can observe with our own eyes, but it's stated explicitly throughout scripture. So we have this huge treasure trove of what, like, Proverbs. You want to know how to be a man? Proverbs. It's like the whole point of the book. And so, yeah, I think I think these things are going to become more common and, and they're going to spread through the church. And soon we won't need podcasts on manhood. That's the goal. It's interesting. The, the Hebrew verb to speak a proverb is also the verb to rule. Yeah, that's right. Right. And there, there's basically dominion wisdom in the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is written to a young man. It's an older man coaching, uh, teaching a young man mm -hmm. to stay away from the painted ladies. Don't become a lazy mm -hmm. bum. You know, right. here's how you change the games. tire. Yeah. And here's how you rotate the tires. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I want to go back to uh, to Bombadil for for a moment, if um, and maybe ask about the catchphrase in evangelical circles in complementarian circles and you don't call yourself that you you're i don't know how to spell it it's like impossible it's, like, it's not even a word yeah autocorrect <laughs> autocorrect dooms me every time so yeah. like i gave up so um let's let's go back to the factory settings and call it patriarchy yep right so we go back to factory settings and patriarchy and the the catchphrase i had in mind was servant leader um so uh, the complementarian world wanted husbands to be uh, the servant leader in the home. And that strikes me as a desperate attempt to soften what the Bible says, because nobody talks about servant Lord. Yep. Okay. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. She, uh, okay. Wouldn't, wouldn't the doctrinal bases be covered if we called the husband, the servant Lord? Yes, but don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> right. right. Uh, or, or servant master. Well, Bombadil, there's nothing in Bombadil's experience that throws him, right? Right. He comes across a tree eating some hobbits. and he just... <laughs> <laughs> Stop that tree. <laughs> and he tells, and he, tells the, he tells the tree to knock it off. Um, they get caught in the barrow you know and uh, in, in the barrows and he comes in he, he just comes into the every situation um knowing what to do it's like he's, he's got skilled mastery for sure he's got skilled mastery he's not thrown by anything and and goldberry calls him the master yeah she, he, she calls him the master without any equivocation i know she says he's the master and then he uh kind of on on cue walks into the room he's got a, a crown of leaves in his hair right he is the master Right, right. And I don't think she has any problem with him being that master. We wouldn't dream of calling Bombadil a servant leader. Uh, yeah, definitely right? not. Yeah. That's not, that's not no. what he is. Right. But at the same time, he's not scary. Nobody's, nobody's uh, when they're in Bombadil's presence, nobody's looking for a safe space. He is the safe space. Yes. Right. Yeah. right. Does, that, right. does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Um, so when when we're up against the lies of feminism and the lies of egalitarianism, one of the first things that we said is what you're arguing for is toxic masculinity, sure. what you're urging is toxic patriarchy, and we need a safe space. But shouldn't our argument be your safe spaces aren't safe? You're, you're miserable in there. Yeah. And the actual safe <clears throat> space is God's design, what the, That's right. the goodness of God's design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that one of the things that uh, is almost unexamined by a lot of folks is the, uh, I think, the reality that uh, that on the left, political left, you have a lot of domineering people, controlling people. Uh, so this idea that you can kind of escape domination by going into that world is, I just don't think... Uh, empirically sound. <laughs> There's just a lot of freaky controlling people out there. Uh, so what we're talking about is, you know, when we talk about freaky controlling people, and we've all run into those people, um, is it, it's, it's that it's not uh, sort of like a, a a problem that's limited to a particular community. It's everywhere. 
you, you can find, you know, freaky controlling people. Yeah. William um, F. Buckley defined a liberal as someone who, when you're taking a shower, reaches and reaches in and adjusts the temperature for you. <laughs> <laughs> adjusts the temperature for oh, you. Man. Right, right, right. But, but you see, that's the thing. It's, it, it, in, I, I don't like the word management uh, and because management just never stops. Rule, on the other hand, uh, is a whole different sort of uh, sort of practice than right. management. Management. Now we need managers. You know, sure. I'm not saying that manager management is is necessarily a bad thing, but managers just never stop messing with you. That's They're right. always messing with you. Right. Whereas with rulers, basically, um, you know, we see it in scripture. Don't maybe come down there. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, you know, when you get in the old Testament, so whenever it says the Lord came down, it's not a good sign. You know? yeah. <laughs> well, Paul's like, saying I can, I can come with a rod, but I would, right. don't make right. me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. yeah. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis has a essay somewhere where he talks about this very thing. Rulers, he much prefers the term rulers to leaders mm -hmm. um, in the civic realm. Yeah. yeah. He doesn't want leaders. He yeah. wants rulers. Yeah. Because the uh, rule can be defined. This is your, yeah. This is your province, and yeah. stay out of the rest of it. Uh, leaders are tempted to constantly fuss. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have to be going somewhere where I can be <laughs> leading you all the time. You yeah, know, sure leading you all the time. Yeah, a good ruler doesn't mess with you if everything is 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 good. Right. Right. So I, I mentioned earlier that in your book, your um, your book is not how to get a wife. Yeah. Right. That's right. It's more. How to be the kind of man that a good woman would want, would want to be with, mm -hmm. right? That's right. So what are the preconditions for going to find a wife? Yeah, so it's hard to have submission without mission, right? right. So when you're trying to call a woman to submit to you, you hear this a lot, and this um, even the patriar the weird side of the patriarchal stuff. Um, if you're not going anywhere, you don't have anything for her to come help you with, right? God makes Adam and brings Eve to help him. Fulfill the creation mandate. Right. So this is why we focus on mission, which is kind of a little bit ambiguous. And I know it's going to frustrate the the autistic folks out there, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, it, it's the idea of like using all the skills that God's given you, provid and the providentially where He's placed you to do Catechism One, right? Well, like live to glorify God and enjoy Him forever in your thing. So get moving somewhere. The problem with a lot of guys is that they make the woman the mission, right? right? And a woman doesn't want to be the center of your universe. She wants to be brought to a worthy man that's doing something. That's, this is why I always tell guys, like, what, why a woman gets on the back of the motorcycle, the jerk, is the jerk looks like he's going somewhere and it doesn't need her um, to be a man. She wants to be part of that. Now, that's not what's going on there, but that's how it's read. Right. So what guys can do is, is first off, start developing the skills, you know, wisdom, strength, workmanship, wisdom, like understand the world you're in and how to apply the truth of scripture, workmanship, actually your ability to shape and things, whether it's code or, or a piece of wood, right? right? And strength, the ability to bear the load of the responsibility that God's given to you. So uh, Paul says in Corinthians that uh, the man was not made for the woman but the woman for the man. That's right. So um, Adam was made for dominion, for the garden, and to turn the world into a garden. That's right. Adam was created with a mission, and Eve was created to tend the gardener. So That's right. he, was, he was created to tend the garden. She's created to tend the gardener. And so man's not made for the woman, but the woman for the man. And you can see this in a, there's a deep structure to, uh, to this, because if you read a book, and it could be, a Safeway Western Louis L'Amour okay. or a great, you know, the Odyssey. If you read a, a book by a man written for a male audience, what's the book about? Well, it's about the guns of Navarone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's, a, it's, it's about Good. the mission or finding the gold sword, yeah. or winning the battle or getting the cattle back. Uh -huh. You know, it's about the mission. And then in the Louis L'Amour novel, the, the love interest enters plucky rancher's daughter, she comes in. What's her role? Well, it's to help him to get the cattle back. Yeah. Right. So he's got a mission. She's, she's, um, it's oriented like this, but if you do the face to face thing, um, which is how a book written by a woman for women, and it could be great literature like pride and prejudice or, um, a Gothic romance type of thing. The relationship is the plot. Yep. Right? That's right. 
first they kind of like each other, then they don't don't like each other, then they like each other again. Oh, that's mm-hmm. that's comes out of communication strategies that guys don't get. When a woman's telling you something, she tells you all these things, and you're like, where is this going? Like, what's the pot uh, the punchline? But the punchline is this is how I experienced my day, and I'm sharing with yeah. you my day. Right. Where a guy wants it to be mission oriented, like I want her a punchline. I want there to be something you're directing me towards. And you have to learn a, a good husband learns to speak woman or, or at least to listen to woman. Yes, right. Listen, yeah. And and that's because there's these deep differences like m- women. Their job is to knit together society, knit yep. together, nurture. So um, this is actually this point you're making is something I go over routinely in my pre-marriage counseling. Good. Uh, <laughs> you're <laughs> the, helping the, a lot the, of men. You're entering a bilingual world. What what both of you are listening to is something that sounds like English, but it's, it's not, not <laughs> oh, yeah. English to the other person. And so guys, uh, and I always have to qualify this, even though it's November, um, I'm generalizing. <laughs> but guys, guys don't like to ask for help. Yep. And they don't like to ask for directions, but they can be prevailed upon if they've got enough of a trouble they can go down the hall at work and talk to their friend about I'm having trouble fixing this carburetor. I'm having trouble writing this with this code or this software program. I'm having trouble with a teenage son. And when he goes and talks to a male friend about the trouble he's having, uh, the words that he most wants to hear in the whole world are, have you tried X, Y, Z? Because because when he's got a trouble and he goes and asks for help, he's looking for a solution. Mm -hmm. So, but when a woman has troubles, she's not looking for the solution primarily. She's looking for a companion. That's right. Right? So uh, this husband comes home and his wife has had a terrible day and all trouble, trouble, trouble. And she pours out, they're having a conversation afterwards and half an hour of laying out how awful the day was, all the troubles she's had. And then he, poor chump, says... Have you tried? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I could tie this all together. You're, to- you're not listening. Yeah. I can tie this all together, actually, with what you said about Bombadil, because early on in my marriage, uh, Emily would tell me about her bad day, and she was really successful at making me feel her emotions. And I'm like, man, as you're talking, you're upset, and you're making me upset, and I don't want to be upset, right? And then I realized that what she really needed me to be is like Bombadil when he comes in. He comes in calm, he's controlled, right? He's got gravitas. He's like, he knows who he is and he doesn't allow the woman um, or the people to pull them into the anxiety of the situation. It's like kind of like Ed, Ed, Edwin Friedman sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's what a man has to develop. When he starts developing that gravitas, when he's in the room, he's at ease with himself, but he's also present. So there's a level of stoicism, not stoicism that's emotionally devoid and can't connect with people. And what I slowly learned is I just had to be there listen to her. Like I remember once she told me, I, I kept going to this grocery store and these carts are all messed up. There's not a good one. So I think go to a different grocery store. There's a lot of them, right? But what I realized is she didn't want to do that. And she just wanted me to say, man, that sounds rough. As a, <laughs> that's what I'd say. And then she's like, yeah, yeah it I was hate, rough. I hate when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, uh, a, a vocal artist named Jason Mraz. I don't know much about him. Good. Uh, <laughs> but he has one song that I think is a really good one. It's called Frank the Fixer. Have okay. you heard of that one? No. It's about his grandfather. Oh, that's cool. And uh, in, this, in the course of the song, it's basically my grandfather could fix anything. And there's a, part, a point in the song where he's talking about his grandmother and how his grandfather handled his grandmother. And it's a fascinating song to listen to. You can, you can listen to it on YouTube. Um, but it, it, it shows, I think this very thing that we're talking about, you just described Yeah. because uh, Frank to fixer was able really to fix anything, including grandma, but it wasn't in the way that you might think. <laughs> yeah. Husband, well, basically husbands need to work on being a thermostat and not a thermometer. Right. That's so, right. So yeah, that's a good analogy. If you're, if you're a thermometer, you're just going to register the temp- temperature of everything that's going on. But if you come home, you just set the thermostat. I want to. I want to be calm, cool, and collected. And everybody else can read that and take assurance from it, mm-hmm. be, be reassured uh, yeah. from it, which is, again, the kind of thing Bombadil does. He, he comes in and everybody's reassured. Yeah, well, and Goldberry, his, his wife, she's, uh, you know, assur- she assures the hobbits that you're going to be okay because she doesn't say you're in my house. She right. says you're going to be okay because you're in the house of Tom Bombadil. 
Right. He's the master. And this is like with community building. This is why Christians um, need to be this calm, confident uh, influence in their community where we know Jesus is going to win. Well, God is good. We have joy that no one can take from us, right? And I think a lot of community building is just getting involved and being being the sort of person, being the bombadil in the situation, whether it's uh, in your HOA or your um, city council or local entrepreneur groups. You, when you get together and there's these guys that are calm and, and happy and, and have wisdom and don't get pulled into whatever the issue of the day is. Yeah, why but, are you not freaking out? Yeah, why are you not freaking out? I think uh, everyone respects that. And, and they, and that's what people want. They want study. How do we fix this problem? They want solutions. And if we have, if we start raising men uh, up that are like that, that's the key to getting cultural change happening. Like, cause we send those guys out and they bring that mastery with them. They bring that confidence with them and everyone wants that, especially in a fatherless society. Over the last couple of years, when we've been in the middle of this pandemic panic and the lockdowns and the masks and everything, uh, we've seen this happening where churches that refuse to close down, churches that um, stayed calm, yep. that didn't participate in the panic, I, I have been experiencing astounding growth. People want to be where the leaders aren't panicked. Yeah, the church I serve in Vancouver, Washington, we have new people every week, and right. it's largely because of what you just said. As, as we are grappling with and trying to get a better understanding of how God actually made the world and what men actually want and need to be, were created to want to be, and what women actually want from the men and what they, what they want to be. In the grip of an egalitarian dogma, people will come and say, well, what role do, what role, uh, do the women in your church have? Right. And they're thinking of it as time on stage or, mm -hmm. you know, how much do they get to read the scripture? Or do they get to, and in, when the case is far advanced, when the problem is far advanced, why can't they preach? You know, that, that sort of thing. And if it's m milder, they'll say, well, what role do the women have apart from the potlucks and the, and the ladies fellowship? It seems to me that the answer is, well, they're, building a civilization. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And what the what godly women want is, so if you have a if you have a service where the men have a role, where the men lead, where the men are confident, where you have that it's not oh look the men got the big piece of pie and the women have the small piece of pie. When you give that to the men, you're giving something profound to the women. That's what the women want. Mhm. Mm Right. I was downstairs. We had a women's night at our, and it was hosted at our house. And I was downstairs watching Goonie with, Goonies with the kids. Uh, Got to be careful with the 80s movies. Uh, just let me <laughs> preface that real quick. Uh, but uh, they were done. So I, I came upstairs into our, um, the room all the women were in. And I walked into a cloud of femininity. Right. You know, like hair was flowing, dresses were flowing, there was laughter everywhere. And it was it was overwhelming because yeah. it was uh, there was a sexual energy in the air that people don't understand. It's not erotic. It's just femininity. It's right. beautiful. And then that right away, I knew we were doing all right with our men. Like we right. can always grow. But these, when you create a space for women to be safe, to be feminine, uh, you see that sort of joy. Um, they've all made all these different you know snacks and all these things. But I think. That's when men are leading the service of leadership, right? right. Um, that's that's a big deal. One way I can help my wife is just make decisions for her. They, they have decision, little decision fatigue throughout the day with kids and all that stuff. Um, when I come in and make decisions for her, um, like I remove that from her and give her leadership, that's a that's a huge service. So I say, if by servant leadership you mean actually leading and ruling and making decisions, oh, right. I, I'm with you. But I don't right. think that's what you mean. So in our church, when the men are leading, what we do is we make a space for women to be feminine. If you think about it, that's what you have in Proverbs 31 that people don't understand. Is that's not a careerist. That's not a careerist woman. Look, she she has money. Well, you think we don't give our wives. <laughs> you know, what, what are you talking about? But it also isn't like a sort of 1950s reduced housewife, at least the the idea of what that woman was. Right. What it is, is a guy, he's 
done well to build a, a place, right? To expand a boundary and put, and, and she's in there, she's refining it. He's given her all these resources and she's able to magnify. Like I always think in, in the sexual act, we give a woman a little bit of sperm and they give us a person, right? You give a woman flour and she gives you bread. And so what, what is the place of women? Well, like you said, they're building civilization. Your problem is that you think of household in a small way. And I remember hearing Chandler say, when you get home from work, you should go do the dishes. Your wife's been at home all day with kids. Okay. Well, first off, I've been, I've been working all day. Uh, and it's kind of, it's kind of, what do you think I do for a living? I I don't know, but (laughs) what the subtext is that home is not where you want to be. Right. The subtext is that she's been here and you get to go out into the world. Now we're both tired and you definitely want to help each other. I have no problem helping with the dishes or whatever, you know, it's my house and we're in this together, but we have to elevate the household. And when I was studying Proverbs 31, I called up our friend, David Talcott. He said, do you know who Chris Wiley is? No, don't know who Chris Wiley is. So I bought your book and I was like, thank goodness. I don't have to try to write a real pathetic book. You already wrote a good book. <laughs> so I thought you were gonna say a real pathetic book. <laughs> no, no, Wiley's got the pathetic no, book covered. But when, when we have that idea of a productive household, a, a place of hospitality, a place of of, of, of business and commerce and all that stuff that women are involved in magnifying what their husband's given them, that question that they ask that the complementarians, the egalitarians are obsessed with becomes stupid. Right? Well, one of the things I think, uh, you know, we can do to kind of understand what's going on here is, you know, at Christmas, when kids open their gifts, if you got a kid who's like unhappy with his or her gift and spends all his or her time looking at the other kid's gift, you know, you know, what you do as a father is, is you don't take that gift that you gave the other kid and give it to that kid. You say, you know, you got something right there in your lap. That's Mm -hmm. pretty cool. You know, do you understand what it's good for? I think a lot of women are like that. They've been given a gift Mm -hmm. and our broader culture has told them it's worthless. That's right. So now they're like, well, I want to have a cool gift too. He's got a cool gift. I want that gift. And, And what they're actually trading for that gift is something that, um, is really valuable, really beautiful, uh, and it's something that men, by by their natures, can't have. That's right. right. You know, I you know now we got a lot of guys who pretend to have babies. Right. You know, who are doing the, the <laughs> tranny thing and all that yeah, kind of yeah. weird stuff. But women actually have that gift. It's yeah. a it's a marvelous gift. Only they can do it. And I think women who are most content and happy are women who understand that they've been given a beautiful gift, right. and they they get into it. Let us never forget that women are the kind of people that people come out of. That's right. It's kind of scary when you think about it. Right, right. Um, even though men, there are things that women do that men cannot do um, and shouldn't try, men can enable the women to do it, uh, protecting them from the snark of the world. So, uh, yeah. so for example, oh, you, you just stay home and bake cookies. Yes, and and the husband says yes, and gives those cookies to immortals. Yeah, right. right. People, People always ask me, "What does Emily do? Uh, what's your wife do for a living?" I say, "Oh, she's a household executive." <laughs> and then I always go, "Oh, that's impressive." And I just kind of roll with it. You know? Right. Or does your wife work? <laughs> right. Like, what, what? More than I do <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. 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 Well, and again, that dis- demonstrates the contempt that people feel for the household. Right. Absolutely. So um, in Ephesians five, it says, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church." One of the things that love does is it bestows loveliness. The experience you you talk about with walking into this uh, room full of women who were secure in their femininity, yeah. right? Yep. That that experience came about because there was a city wall. There there was That's a right. there, was there was a buffer, and the buffer is oftentimes a little gnarlier, uglier, colder, tougher than that which it protects, mm-hmm. right, right? And that's what the men are supposed to do, provide and protect. So when the men uh, are doing what they ought to do, they're providing a zone, a safe space, within which women can flourish. And when men provide, they bring home the, the paycheck. What they do is they give something to the woman, she glorifies it and returns yeah. it to him. Yep. Right, right? Mm-hmm. You, you give her a little piece of paper and, it comes back as a Thanksgiving meal or, yeah. you, or, the, or the child. You, uh, the man makes love to a woman and she gives him yeah, it's amazing. a son, gives him a daughter. Mm-hmm. She's a field. She's a field that a husband cultivates. 
Right. And 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 she magnifies. And that's, a, that, that's a hate crime right there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, said something similar. Well, right? there, there was a line, and it's good to be a man. And uh, someone named Brian uh, said, "Hey, we've we've had lines like this before. Maybe rework this one a little bit." So we did. <laughs> when when you have a masculinity fail or femininity fail, or oftentimes they both fail at the same time, or they uh, the failures. Uh, reciprocate, they feed off of each other. What happens is that everybody's left standing around not knowing what to do. Non-believers, the sec- people who've bought into the secular vision can go off and try and find their inner self and mm. and I'm going to become a girl or I'm going to become, I'm going to go do something. I'm going to just drink the Kool-Aid and go. But Christians have this internal restraint that keeps them from going to the absurd lengths that the world does but they're left absolutely uninstructed about what they're supposed to do. And so they just flail helplessly. Yeah. We say, as a man goes, goes the household. As a household goes, so goes society. Right. right? And so you have this, uh, this time where David's not really being a very bold leader, which he messed up with his family quite a bit. And so he's getting old and Absalom goes to the city gate. And he says, hey, I, I'd argue your case. I care about you, you know. And he shows all this love for these men. And then it says, and this is how Absalom stole the hearts of Israel. Right. And so his method, is, his stratagem was good. It yeah. was actually really good. And we can learn from it. But he was a evil patriarch. And a point that we're always trying to make is that there is such thing as the evil patriarch. Uh, after all, the devil is a father. <laughs> He's the mm-hmm. father of lies. So even that, even though that patriarchy is inevitable, it's a feature of God's cosmos, there can be evil manifestations. Just like heterosexual sex is normal, but there can be evil manifestations. Yeah. Um, if we don't get this right with men, uh, it blows apart the households, and, for, and households are the basic building block of society. And I think that's probably why in statism, they zoom in and attack men. I think about Pharaoh, right? So Pharaoh is an evil patriarch. So he kills the firstborn daughters or the firstborn sons. The firstborn sons are the heads of the household of the future. And he tries to break them different ways, pacify them with hard labor. And we do that with video games by uh, keeping these men weak, porn removes a man's sex drive to get a woman and build awesome things. Uh, it's a way to keep them enslaved and calm. I think E. Michael Jones, uh, he's not a friend to the Jews, but he's got some really good arguments when it comes into the purpose of um, pornography from a state level. Um, so what happens is there's only so much authority that God delegates in, in nature hates a vacuum. And when men are weak and they don't exercise their authority, the state gobbles it up. And now we have this huge nanny state that's, telling us what we can do in worship. And because we don't go to the scriptures for our blueprints, for our marching orders, um, we have all these plane crashes, marriages blowing up. Uh, the wife starts reading, I'm a victim books. And, and let's say she's got a husband who's an ordinary sinner schlub, not, not an abuser, not a, yeah, but he's, right. he's just an ordinary sinner guy. And all of a sudden he, he becomes the enemy. The marriage blows up. Churches blow up, and we don't have anybody who can come in after the plane crash and analyze the black box. Mm-hmm. We don't get any official report afterwards. This is what happened. And that's what I think we're trying to recover yeah. of being able to say, this is what's happening. This is why your marriage is on the rocks. This is why your church is on the brink of folding, because we're, we've shied away from and have been embarrassed by God's creation design instructions. Chris, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I I guess uh, one of the things that was really fun to learn as I looked into the story, you know, sort of uh, Bombadil, is how he wins Goldberry. Mm -hmm. There was actually a poem that was written in the mid-30s entitled The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. It appeared in uh, one of the papers at Oxford. And so it's actually older. Tom is actually older than The Hobbit. Right. Yeah. So, um, and in that story, uh, we, we see that Tom can't be caught. Everybody's trying to catch Tom. <laughs> so, you know, the Barrowite tries to catch him. Uh, the, the Badger tries to catch him. Old Man Willow tries to catch him. And Goldberry tries to catch him. There's huh. this uh, fun scene where he's, he's looking in the withy window, this, the river. And, and I think it's just a flirtatious behavior. She reaches up and grabs his beard and pulls him in. 
<laughs> and so he's under the water. And then she, she, she kind of goes away, you know, she's sort of swimming down, you know, to her, to her home, you know, at the bottom of the, of the river. And Tom says, oh, no, you're not going to catch me. You know, I'm not going to live with you. And then later on, he catches her, holds her tight, says, you're going to be my wife, and then nice. takes her home. So, uh, and then she, uh, she, so she's caught. One of the things I think you see in that particular episode is kind of these uh, sexual dynamics between men and women. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that uh, Goldberry was attracted to Tom and uh, Tom's, it was mutual. And this actually also ties into the, kind of the, what I think is kind of the backstory uh, for Goldberry that uh, Tolkien was drawing on. There's actually uh, sort of a kind of a part of this whole water spirit dynamic. One of the particular water spirits, if you catch her, then she had to become your wife. So the issue, I guess, with pursuit, you know, who's doing the pursuing? I think a lot of guys, um, when it comes to the, you know, the question of how do I win a wife, um, they, they almost behave like women in the sense of sort of preening and prettying themselves mm -hmm. up, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and the hope that they, the woman will catch them. This is weird stuff. This is not yep. the way it actually works. It works the other way around. And uh, now it does not... Uh, uh, you know, this doesn't mean the creepy stalker guy, <laughs> right? You know, we're not talking about that. <laughs> but, but there is a kind of godly pursuit of a woman that I think reflects well upon a man. And if he pursues a woman in the right way, he can win the girl. That's Faint, faint heart, fair lady. That's it. Yeah, yeah. No. yeah. So I, I think that getting, you know, getting to the question of what should guys do if they want, you know, to uh, establish a household, is you got to go out and find a good woman. And you got a pursuer and winner, and uh, then sh you can have the kind of household that we've just been describing. Yeah, right. amen. Final thoughts? Um, I'd rather you find a church that causes you the pain of benevolent discipline than buy my book. <laughs> right? Uh, my goal is to help men in the way that I've been helped by other men. And... Um, you, when you get to, you know, we, we call, we talk about the concept of a bastard, which has been lost in our culture. It's just a cuss word. Uh, but it used to be shameful not to bear your father's name and everything that name represents. Right. And so we have people, men in particular that are fatherless and they don't know how to become a man because they don't have fathers. And the church is commanded to love the widow and the orphan. And in a sense, orphan is very similar to someone that is a, a functional bastard. And so what I would tell anyone is that to grow in manhood, you need uh, the church, right? You need the gospel. You need God's, uh, God's love as your father, right? There's your validation you need. But in terms of practically living out manhood, uh, sermons that sting, <laughs> You know, like uh, you got to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Uh, it's an old Puritan mm -hmm. idea. And, and so I think what we really need um, is churches that are bold enough to say things that will ruffle the feathers. Men are weird. Like when you, like when you rebuke them, they love you more for it. Right. <laughs> like over and over again, the more you hurt a man in it, like it's like a coach. You know, that put, I had a coach that would push me so hard in wrestling and I, I finally got Foster, you can wrestle for me. Like that was like it mm -hmm. the whole season, but man, it meant everything. And he just wanted the best out of you. So I think pastors, if you can push men without barking at them, right? Like inspiring them to greatness for the glory of God, they're going to, they're going to respond. And that means as men, you have to have correctability. If you, if you read Proverbs, the main thing that comes out is that you're getting wisdom because you're allowing people to correct you and improve you. And you have the humility to accept their correction of older, wiser men. So my last thought would just be find a church that does that, a church that loves you and loves you enough to cause you some pain because all discipline is painful for the moment, right? But it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Right. Final thought I would leave, uh, leave with, it would be whether you're, seeking to build a broader culture or seeking to build your own understanding of what it is to be a man or a godly household or building a church community. Um, there, there are two things that I would uh, leave everyone with. One is that it is absolutely necessary to live in such a way as to draw slanderous accusations. If you're not drawing those accusations, you're not getting close to it. And it's equally true. The second thing is 
it's equally necessary for those slanders to be slanders and not actually true. <laughs> right? right. So if if you're not accused of hating women, you're not doing your job. If you are actually hating women, you're not doing your you're yeah. you're being yeah. disobedient. It this wouldn't have been true in 1952. Uh but now it is absolutely true. If you build an orthodox, godly marriage, household, church, whatever, you're going to be accused of these things, mm -hmm. and you have to be absolutely willing for it. And you also have to be resolved that none of it is the case. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, you, the statement, uh, beware when all men speak well of you. Right. Um, it seems like there's a whole outlook in the church today where that's the, the goal. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to get your copy of the Dominion Bundle at canonpress.com.